The Jerusalem Channel is made possible by viewer support. Thanks for watching. There is a provocative Bible verse that a lot of believers know and talk about, but it actually takes daily determination and discipline to put it into practice. The verse decrees that death and life are in the power of the tongue, and the verse adds that we're going to eat the fruit of whatever we say. So if our words are wholesome, positive, and godly, we'll eat good fruit, but if our words are bitter, and if we fret all the time, griping and complaining, the fruit our words produce will be rotten and will surely bear the consequences. Shalom, I'm Christine Darg. Death and life are in the power of the tongue and we're going to eat the fruit of whatever we say. That's according to Proverbs 18.21 in the Bible. And also 1 Corinthians 11.31 admonishes us that if we'll have the presence of mind to judge ourselves, we'll not be judged. In the Bible, God sent 10 plagues against the gods of Egypt. But when the Israelites were finally liberated to trek towards their promised land, at least 11 plagues were sent by God against them because of their unbelief. And nine out of the 11 plagues in the wilderness were tragically the result of their misuse of the tongue, griping, fretting, murmuring, and complaining. In most cases, undisciplined, unbridled tongues were the cause of their problems. And over in the New Testament, in James chapter 3 is a definitive chapter which says that the tongue is a fire and no one can tame the tongue. It's restless and evil, full of deadly poison. James wrote that the tongue is set on fire by hell. And all we have to do is spend a few minutes perusing comments on the social media and we can see how true is that statement, that the tongue is full of hellfire. And when we look at the state of the world, it's easy to give in to despair and to complain continually about how terrible and ominous everything is becoming. As a watchman on the walls of Jerusalem, there's a lot going on every day that's very vexing to an intercessor's soul. Anti-Semitism is dangerously arising again, and trying to stop it is like rushing from one place to another, constantly trying to put out fires. An alarming growth in boycotting Israeli people and products is rapidly spreading across Europe. Recently in the House of Lords, former Chief Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs described the rise of anti-Semitism in Europe today as being similar to the period leading up to the Holocaust. Also, the Times newspaper recently reported a Czech Republic University study on the children and grandchildren of Holocaust survivors. Even though more than 70 years have passed, the study said that damage inflicted on Holocaust survivors is measurable in the brains of their descendants down to the third generation. But that's not really 
the Jews that people hate. It's ultimately the God of Israel that they resent. So instead of giving into despair at the evils of the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement known as BDS, we have the Bible's good news that these waves of anti-Semitism cannot prevail because it's impossible for boycotting activities to thwart the purposes of the God of Israel because this word says he has determined at this time to keep covenant with Israel. And moreover, boycotting Israel actually hurts the economic well-being of Arabs living in Israel as well as Israeli Jews. Despite all the opposition that Israel encounters as a democracy in the Middle East, earlier this year Israel became the first country to finalize a trade deal with Britain following Brexit, which will create even more jobs and prosperity. Israel's ambassador to the UK, Mark Regev, noted that security cooperation is saving British and Israeli lives, and the research partnerships between Israeli and British universities are solving technological, medical, and ecological challenges of our time. One out of every six medicines dispensed by the National Health Service in Britain is reportedly made by Israel. In remarks, to the Jerusalem Channel, Ambassador Regev also spoke up for Christians who are being persecuted. He said that as anti-Semitism tragically rears its ugly head, also Christians are enduring untold discrimination, adding that these threats in the Middle East require us to stand together and to stand up for the values that we share. And indeed, I just can't emphasize enough as a watchman on the walls that both Jews and Christians are considered to be the people of the book. And so we must stand together and guard each other's backs. Well, at a Jerusalem Channel dinner recently in London, the deputy ambassador of the Embassy of Israel, Sharon Barley, said that anti-Semitism and the BDS movement are failing. And how can we prove it? Well, we can examine the raw figures for trade between the two democracies of the United Kingdom and Israel. For example, in 2018, trade between Israel and the UK reached a record 8.6 billion pounds, and that was up from 6.9 billion pounds the year before, and it's a remarkable 25% year-on-year increase, making the BDS movement an empirical failure. But far more importantly, the deputy ambassador said that the BDS movement is a moral failure for three reasons. First of all, it's a moral failure because it claims to be anti-racist, but it is in fact racist itself because it singles out Israel and Israelis for demonization. From university campuses to town halls and supermarkets, no other country is targeted by such constant and vitriolic protest. Secondly, the BDS movement is a moral failure because it claims to stand up for the Palestinians, but Palestinians, Israeli Jews, and Israeli Arabs all end up as its victims. Boycotting Israeli goods undermines Palestinian workers who need to earn their incomes. So the boycott movement's Activists are, in effect, 
damaging the welfare of those that they claim to support. Think about that. And a third reason that the BDS movement is a moral failure is because it denies the Jewish people's historic connection to their ancient homeland. It rejects their right to national self-determination. And so it ultimately undermines peace. It certainly does not advance peace efforts. Only recently, the foreign minister of Bahrain publicly acknowledged that Israel is part of the heritage of the Middle East and that communication with Israel needs to be a prerequisite to solving conflicts. Meanwhile, other countries around the world are recognizing that the BDS movement is morally wrong. Germany passed a resolution calling BDS anti-Semitic and demanding that public funding be denied to organizations supporting boycotts. Many states in the USA have also passed resolutions against BDS. In fact, as of this broadcast, 27 American states have adopted laws designed to discourage boycotts against Israel. And separately, in reaction to the BDS movement, the American Congress is considering anti-boycott legislation as well. Explaining that throughout history, anti-Semitism has come and gone in waves, member of Knesset Sharon Haskell, recently speaking at London's parliament, told a committee meeting of the British Parliamentary Israel Allies Caucus that currently we're in the midst of another rising wave of anti-Semitism and religious intolerance in which European anti-Semitism is masked with the territorial mask of anti-Zionism. Well, Zionism is a belief in national self-determination for the Jewish people in their biblical ancestral homeland. But Jew hatred has taken many forms over the millennia. It's been said that in theory, you could be anti-Zionist without being anti-Semitic, but if the Jews are the only nation whose rights you deny, it rather trips an alarm, does it not? Well, in the minds of Jewish people, I have to tell you that all of the boycotting against Israel amounts to revived ancient blood libels and slander, misuse of the tongue against the people of the book. So today I'm looking into the Bible again about misuse of the tongue, which includes not just the endlessly foul language pouring out of social media, Netflix, television, the internet, and movie houses, but whisperings, murmurings, fretting within our own safe spaces. We just have no idea how much God detests fretting, let alone slander and false accusations until we study this word. The great English man of God, John Wesley, said that he would dare no more fret than curse or swear. I find that statement amazingly challenging and it's worth putting on a sign over my desk. I should dare no more fret than curse or swear. Well, it's patently obvious that curse words are to be eliminated from the vocabulary of a man or woman of God, but fretting, mumbling, and complaining? Are they not sometimes legitimate laments? But John Wesley had grown so close to God that he knew how much God hates murmuring, complaining, griping, and fretting, and that God punishes it. 
But to understand that, you have to know this book. Wesley was educated by the Holy Spirit to know that fretting tends only to evil, as this word says. When we continually always can envision God on the throne, ruling over everything, no matter how many dark clouds surround us, we'll realize that fretting is a waste of time and energy, and it's a lack of faith. You see, fretting is a verbal denial of God's promises. Fretting is a sin against God himself and against all of his magnificent promises in this book. Furthermore, the Bible says that fretting is generally accompanied by envy. So when we want to fret, we have to train ourselves to change gears, to decide to delight ourselves in the Lord's surprising turnarounds. We must train ourselves to trust him rather than succumbing to the fitful fever of fretting. Well, after their departure from Egypt, God's people murmured and complained about the hardship of trekking through the wilderness. And we read in Numbers chapter 11, how their whining displeased the Lord. The Bible says, the Lord heard it and fire burned among them and consumed the grumblers. Commenting on this passage in the Torah, the apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10, Neither should we murmur, as some of them also murmured. And he added that these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us unto whom the ends of the ages have come. That deserves a Selah moment of meditation. Amazing. God caused all the Israelites' troubles to be recorded to teach us how to behave in his sight. But people with a discontented, bitter spirit will always find something to complain about. They're inevitably going to take issue with something to fret or quarrel over. When you're running somebody down, do you ever think that God is monitoring your conversation? But God hears it. And he loathes murmuring. Actually, who among us doesn't grow weary of grumblers and gripers? Who doesn't try to avoid them? According to the commentaries, complainers are virtual atheists because they're not trusting in God. They're not relying upon his guidance and goodness. You see, a dissatisfied spirit brings displeasure to the Lord because it challenges his wisdom and his ways. Never doubt the Lord's goodness. Even if we're being tested through difficult times, God's goodness never changes. There's no darkness or caprice in him at all. So we have to abandon any tendencies toward distrust of the Almighty. We have to purpose to reject every disloyal suspicion regarding the Lord's faithfulness. And instead, we have to believe that he's always going to do the right thing. And here's something to take on board. The Bible says that ingratitude to God results in leanness of soul. Psalm 106, 15 says, God gave the complainers in the wilderness meat to eat by sending them quail. He accommodated their cravings, but he sent leanness into their soul. The meaning of the Hebrew is literally, he granted their request, but sent a wasting disease. So as a precaution, the writer of Hebrews 13, 5 
admonishes us to be content with what we have. Every day, every hour, we have to be mindful of our heart attitude. The tongue can get us into trouble big time. For example, there's the dissension of the siblings of Moses, Miriam and Aaron, in Numbers chapter 12. They spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman that he'd married. Now, was this just a family feud or was there something else underlying their complaint? Well, the text tells us that they said, has the Lord really spoken only through Moses? Hasn't he also spoken through us? Sounds like pride to me. And the Lord heard it. The Lord reprimanded them, asking, why were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? Miriam must have been the main instigator because when God's glory cloud departed, behold, Miriam was covered with leprosy and she was humiliated by being shut out of the camp, sent into isolation for seven days. She was also humbled by being healed in answer to the prayer of the man whom she had slandered, thinking herself equal to him. So Moses' humility teaches us how to intercede for people who attack our character. Well, feminists may resent the fact that it was only Miriam who was punished with leprosy. So I did some research on this, and the main explanation seems to be that Miriam was held more responsible because she instigated the challenge in the first place and then enlisted Aaron to support her. Let's beware of picking up somebody else's offense. Instigators do have a way of pulling others into their conflicts. And there are two things in the text to observe. Miriam is named before Aaron at the start of this account. But in every other place in the Bible where they are named together, Aaron is mentioned first. Secondly, the verb speak against is actually in the feminine singular in Hebrew. She spoke Miriam and Aaron against Moses. I also read the following insights at the Chabad website. Fascinating. Miriam's punishment seems completely disproportionate to her crime to be afflicted with leprosy and sent out of a camp for seven full days. All this for talking about marriage within their own family. Miriam was indeed a prophetess and God had spoken by her. After all, without her, Moses surely would not have survived in the Nile River. She had dared to defy Pharaoh's decree that all Jewish baby boys must be killed at birth. When her mother hid Moses in a basket on the Nile, Miriam watched over him in the reeds and waited to see what would happen. And when he was rescued, Miriam arranged for Moses to be nursed by his own mother. Later, after the exodus and the splitting of the Red Sea, Miriam led the women in song and dance. Together with Moses and Aaron, she was a shepherdess of the Jewish people in the desert. And the Talmud teaches that, like her two brothers, Miriam died by this so-called kiss of death from God, a euphemism for a painless death in Judaism. And did you know that in the daily morning prayer, the Jewish people read a paragraph called Six Remembrances, which includes the command to remember what the Lord your God did to Miriam on the way as you came out of Egypt. 
Why does this incident rank among the top six things the Jewish people are supposed to consciously remember on a daily basis? Well, the sages explain that Miriam was punished so severely to teach us that God doesn't dispense one-size-fits-all justice. For someone of the spiritual stature of Miriam, her behavior was considered reprehensible. Even the greatest and holiest among us can't get away with doing wrong. God's justice is custom-tailored to each individual, based on who the person is and what God expects from him or her. And that thought fits right in with the teachings of the New Testament. Because in the book of James, who was the half-brother of Jesus, raised as an Orthodox Jew, James wrote in James 3.1 that teachers will be judged with greater strictness. And so the Lord sent fiery serpents among them and many died. The commentaries teach that every complaint that comes out of our mouth has a potential corresponding serpent. That really amazed me. It made me stop and, and pray, deliver my soul, O Lord, from lying lips and the misuse of my tongue. However, when the people acknowledged their sin and said, we have sinned against the Lord, Moses interceded for them and God instructed him to make a bronze snake and put it up on a pole and anyone bitten could look at the pole and live. They would be healed. And this was a picture of the cross of Messiah all the way back in the Torah. Well, in the Gospels, Jesus himself taught, I tell you that men will give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. So more than we could ever realize, a lot's at stake in our mouths or in our sign language. And our conversation ultimately depends on what's filling our heart because Jesus observed in Luke 6:45 that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So a critical heart produces critical words, and a self-righteous heart produces a judgmental, haughty attitude. A bitter heart produces an acid tongue. Let's learn from one of my favorite psalms. Turn with me to Psalm 37 which admonishes us in Hebrew, dom le adamai, meaning hush, be still before the Lord. The Hebrew actually means to be mute, to be silent in the presence of God. Hush up. Don't murmur. Don't make a complaint. A faithful believer is tempted to complain when we see evil, wicked people doing such terrible, outrageous things and seemingly getting away with it. But the Bible teaches us the wisdom to silently wait patiently for the Lord. Psalm 37 starts out by advising us not to fret because of all the wickedness that we're seeing. And it continually admonishes us not to fret. By contrast, the psalm says the Lord laughs because he sees that their day is coming. Be satisfied that God will make all things work together for good. Nevertheless, the psalm says that a righteous person is perplexed daily and is in danger of fretting. So I looked up the word fret in the Hebrew and the following definitions are given. To boil up, to be angry, to blaze up with anger, wax hot, to be violently agitated, 
Just from these definitions, I can see how fretting would be related to high blood pressure, strokes, cancer, diseases. The verse seems to be saying, don't get into a perilous heat about things. Fretting is simply unnecessary friction that causes things to break down. So we have to train ourselves to let go of an irritation, to drop some petty insult. People will continually annoy us because they're people. But the psalmist says, fret not thyself. And the cure is in verse 3 of Psalm 37. Trust in the Lord. Trust is confidence in the God who has promised and is able also to perform his will. In some places in the Hebrew Bible, trust is rendered, be careless, carefree. The thought is illustrated by the carefree attitude of a little child who trusts his parents to provide everything without anxiety. As the Apostle Paul also noted in Philippians 4, 6, he said, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Psalm 37.4 is also an antidote to fretting. Delight thyself also in the Lord. And verse 5, commit thy way unto the Lord. Trust also in him and he shall bring it to pass. It's delightful to learn the original meaning of the word commit is to roll. This verse could read, roll thy burden upon the Lord. And then verse 7 says to rest silently in the Lord and wait patiently for him. So if we're really trusting in the Lord, delighting in him and committing our way unto the Lord, then while we're going about our daily routines, there should be no anxiety but continual resting and waiting for all will be well. I encourage you today that the secret of tranquility is to rest in the word of God Rest also in the love of God, in his never-failing promises. Well, the good news for the last days is that all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved and healed and delivered. And once saved, no power in hell can snatch us out of the Lord's hand. But the Lord must be received now in this lifetime. So I urge you to do what I've already done, to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus, Yeshua, the one mediator between God and man. He's promised always to lead us, to guide us, and never to forsake us. And let's reconsecrate our tongues to his glory. Also, as watchmen, we call upon intercessors for the Middle East and those who pray earnestly for the peace of Jerusalem to champion our shared Judeo-Christian values. Our hope is that the Messiah is on his way to bring ultimate justice. In the meantime, we work for justice and peace as representatives on his behalf. And while we await the Lord's soon appearing, I want to encourage you that all of our teachings are available to watch at our website, exploits.tv. Our videos are there to strengthen your faith. And you can also click online to receive our free color magazine, Exploits, based upon Daniel 11.32. That verse declares that the people who know their God will be strong, not weak, and will take action, carrying out exploits. In other words, we're going to accomplish the works of the Lord in our generation. 
You'll also find details of our adventurous Holy Land prayer tours at our website. We lead insiders tours at least three times a year, and they're truly stimulating and life-changing as you watch the Bible come alive. So let's stay in touch through social media, through our Jerusalem Channel app, available free to download from your app store. And please tell your friends to watch our programs. And so until next time, always contending for the faith and praying for the peace of Jerusalem. I'm Christine Darek. Shalom and Maranatha. <music>